KOW. So when I listen to you, it feels as if art critics would mostly inhabit the blind spots of their very critique, neglecting the social insignificance of their own practice and their own words. And then it makes me think of the way how you use words, because whenever I listen to you, I feel you choose your words extremely carefully. So I'm thinking about your relation to the world of critique and critics and art intellectuals that all have very sharp criteria. Creating a discourse and inhabiting blind spots that you actually want to shed light on, which brings you into a precarious situation, maybe. <laughs> so is it correct when I feel that you have tried to develop a language that makes you as safe as possible in this very conflictual conditions? I don't think I'm very safe. I, I think what makes it unsafe for me to, you describe it really well, to shed light on the blind spot at the heart of the production of critique within the art world. The blind spot is that indeed it is sterile for people who work on plantations or and many others and many others but there is a direct connection between the plantations and the institutions in which the critique is produced mm -hmm. so i could make a philosophical treaty about that or an artistic treaty about it i could say hey here's the world of critique and here's the world of plantations you see there's clearly a big difference between those two worlds and you can juxtapose them. You can juxtapose the wealth and the freedom of choice of the, of the sites of production of critique. And you could juxtapose that to the lack of means and agency and freedom of choice on the sites of production of wealth with which the critique The, the apparatus of critique indirectly is financed. You could simply juxtapose that. And I think some artists have been doing that. But I did not do that. I literally moved myself from the one sphere to the other. And I'm like the stand-in for the... In the film Enjoy Poverty and in the beginning of White Cube and in the film Episode One, that is now at KOW, I kind of literally dragged myself from this inconsequential world of critique into the site where critique has no impact. And so I'm the bad guy. Mm -hmm. I'm the sterile critic. Mm -hmm. But I exhibit the sterility of this critic on the site where people really could use some good critique and some real consequences. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm the mediator. Mm -hmm. I'm the moderator between those two worlds. But I'm a terrible moderator because I'm, I'm this vain guy who like talks about God knows my feelings and the this and the that and the, you know, intellectual constructions. But I do it on the site where people need change. And that's not very safe. That's not very safe. No, it's not. That's correct. Nevertheless, let me ask, can you make a distinction between the role you play in that moment and Renzo Martins? Of course I can. Um, can you describe that? Yeah. 
when I embody the world of critique, the world of art, the world of artistic critique, and the role of a beneficiary of the suffering of other people, then when I embody that in a site where, again, people are desperate for change, need change, want change, do everything they can to bring change, then I'm the enemy of that change. As I think we are all kinds of kind of enemies of that change if we do not mm -hmm. attach consequences mm -hmm. of, to our analysis. So in a way, I, I do it for strategic reasons, of course, but I embody everything that is, that is untrustworthy and that is despicable about the art world. And what's, what does Renzo Martins feel? While Renzo Martin's me, this wall. I mean, the person that's sitting in front. Yeah, yeah, me. I want to exhibit that. I'm a whistleblower, but I use myself to exhibit a problem. I know, but what I'm asking is, how does it feel? I mean, because what you're describing is not a comfortable place. Mm -hmm. And in your films, we can see that there's a situation that you create by bringing your body and your words and your voice and your appearance into certain places uh, in which you are per role and per definition an enemy, I imagine that's not easy. And I'm talking about feelings. Okay. I mean, the price I pay is completely tiny, tiny, compared to the price that people on those plantations or in those refugee camps pay for the fact that critique is inconsequential. But the price I pay is that I'm, I have to play a double role, that I'm somebody else, that I'm a representative of a capitalist system in which critique is sterile. Now, playing that role is sometimes uncomfortable, but I have to admit that sometimes this type of truth-telling, not only to people on plantations, but also to audiences who I know will later see the film. It gives me pleasure also. Ah, that's interesting because, you know, your way to speak about it sounds very analytical. Mm. But when you say truth-telling, I think this is a deeper desire than just drawing consequences from analytical reflection. The truth-telling has, has, has pleasure in it, a sardonic pleasure even. When I say in the film Enjoy Poverty to people on plantations that they will never see this film. Yes, harsh scene. Harsh scene. But I not only say it to people on plantations, I also say it to everybody who then watches the film. I know that they will see this line. They will see me saying those words. Yes. And I'm poking at them. I'm like saying, this is you. You are watching this film. But the people in the film will not see it. It seems maybe as if I use a knife to hurt the guy on the plantation, and maybe I do to some degree. And if that's true, that's a realistic but terrible. But I think the knife is especially turned, or the gun is especially turned to the viewers. Mm -hmm. Because I make them aware that they have now the freedom of choice to watch this film walk in, walk out, like it, not like it, whatever they may want to do. But the guys on the plantation have no choice. They will not see it. They will not see it because they don't have electricity. They don't have a TV. There's no movie screen. There's no infrastructure. There is no critical apparatus within which those films can operate. And it's not there because people don't want it. It's there because there, all the capital is constantly drawn out from those places. 
So that's why, that's the reason why the guy won't see the film. It's not because I don't want to give him a DVD or send him a link. It's because he has no phone. He has no TV screen, right? That's why he will not see the film. So telling the truth is a pleasure. Yeah, that's true. It's a pleasure because I kind of want to, some of the pain, I want viewers to share in that pain. So you really have a problem with lies. You really dislike, you hate lies. I like, I like stabbing hypocrites. You like stabbing hypocrites? Yeah. Uh, Where I does this come from? Like, uh, have you, have, have you read, have you read novels about social injustice that have, I have to rephrase it. You? I have to rephrase this because I, it's not really to write like stabbing. I like to expose the hypocrisy of people that can claim that they care about the world and the injustices and yet point to the fact that they have the freedom of choice to be part of it or not, walk out of a room or not, like it or not, whereas many other people do not have that choice. So I want to shed light on how unjust that is. And I want people who think they have the freedom to walk in or out, share in the pain of those who do not have the choice. So when the neon sign in the film Enjoy Poverty is put up, stating Enjoy Poverty, of course, this could be painful for people on plantations. I hope it brings much more pain to engaged art audiences who like to think that art is, and, 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 and their uh, benevolence, of wanting to engage with inequalities in this world, that this benevolence is um, undermined, hijacked, and maybe even killed. I, I want like them that. to share I, in the pain. You you may not like <clears throat> this notion, but I sense a good sadism in that and a sort of revenge that makes me to ask, like, have you been born as a good social democrat? Or, like, where does the sense of injustice that makes you freak out, apparently? Um, do you know where this comes from? Not really. Um, I always avoid talking about subjects like this. Uh, we can try it now. Um, but uh, there was a, recently an article in The New Yorker, and uh, the journalist asked me a similar question. And then I told some story about how my mother's family were wealthy farmers. They had land and horses and things like that. And my father's family from the same region, they were like landless farmhands. But even my mother's family, who they were just middlemen because the land was really, you know how the Netherlands, it has polders. Mm-hmm. It has land reclaimed from the sea. Mm-hmm. All those projects were uh, financed by aristocratic people in Brussels or Amsterdam or The Hague. And, and they had middlemen to kind of organize the labor. That was my mother's family. And then they had just disposable workers who had to survive winter on potatoes and pig fat. And I'm a child of those two little sections of society. And I, I was a, a child that came without... Uh, I wasn't planned so much. My mother's family didn't want to see me when I was born. I was six months old before the family allowed my mother to come show me to her parents. 
because it was a disgrace that she had a child with this lower working class mm-hmm. uh, man. Mm-hmm. So this is one little explanation, but I think I don't really know. Is there a desire in you to be seen? Well, I mean, clearly. Clearly in your works, you show yourself. Completely. I exhibit myself as, as this... Uh, I exhibit m- myself as this person from this higher class, and I go to people of a lower class, and I, I take on the role of the privileged and exhibit how the privileged are complicit, even when they pretend that they're not in the suffering of the lower classes. Which is in itself ambivalent because you, of course you're privileged, we're privileged here. You just described that the family background you come from was not a place we would typically call very privileged. Um, yet the art world creates that space in which regardless if you earn money or not, regardless if you actually are successful or not, people may know your name, but who knows what's really behind in terms of living conditions, etc. But you kind of pick up that artist world that is always more shiny than the realities behind, right? Yeah. And that is the kind of paint you put on your face when you switch on the camera and turn it against yourself. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Do you negotiate something with yourself when you do that? Yeah, I guess so, but I never analyze that. My analysis of what I do goes about as far as the things we talked about. The deeper drives in me to to actually position myself as somebody of a privileged environment and then shed light on how that privilege is extracted from the suffering of others and you know but there's another aspect to it you point at it now is that i'm actually not a wealthy person i'm not even a middle class person so i put some fetters on myself that i don't actually have yeah and i can do it in the art world because there is this you know there there is this this assumption that whether you work whether you whether you that that the white cube is everywhere right that uh, whether it's the tate modern or some little off grid uh and it uh, shines on you and then it shines on me yeah 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 so i put feathers on me that i don't actually have in everything even in my language in in you know whatever and and it works yeah and meanwhile you say you don't you don't reflect so much about Why you do things, motivations, background, etc. You don't want to talk about it so much. And that's that's maybe what makes you a good moderator. Because good moderators don't talk about themselves so much and try to make others talk. Yeah, I make abstraction of my own position. But I think it's the position I adopted. I, I think it's exemplary for how artists in general need to pretend that they're free of class and autonomous. Isn't that an old paradigm, this idealization of the artist as transgressing class distinctions, etc.? Which was never true in any case, it was only storytelling? Well, that's still the myth of the white cube, though. The myth of 
There's this article about, uh, written by Kolja Geichert. He's a critic here in Berlin. I think in German it's called the Stopsauger effect. I don't know how to pronounce Stopsauger. it. Stopsauger effect. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and it, it's really a, an analysis and a critique of pyramid system that the art world is. But one of the more striking images that he produces in this uh, article is that there's the presumed equality, whether you, you can sit as, as, as an artist who can't pay the bills next to some heiress who has four billion in her bank account, and you are both inhabiting the space of the white cube. And so for the duration of the dinner, you will be equal, even if you will go back to your little apartment of which you can't pay the rent, and she will go back to the four billion. But for the duration of the dinner, you ideologically inhabit the same space. Let's look at this situation. Is it beautiful or is it cool? For the duration of the dinner, it's beautiful because it overcomes class difference and difference in wealth and power. You know, as soon as you walk out of the door, of course, that is gone. And you can also question for whom is it more beautiful? Is it more beautiful for the person, the artist that can't pay the rent or for the four billion dollar Harris? You know, who is served most by this semblance of equality? I tend to think that for the billionaire Harris, it really serves her because she doesn't have to investigate her privilege. And for the artist who can't pay the rent, it also serves something because temporarily this artist can feel that she or he is on equal footing as the billionaire Harris. So for both, there is something to gain from it. Both. But the problem is that both will will be lured into thinking that class difference is not an economic difference. Economic inequality is not all pervasive, it's not all dominating. It creates a safe space for capital. And if they would be honest, both would say that they totally know and are aware at any given moment that this is storytelling and that they will never be part of the world of the others, let alone be really interested in it. Yeah, if you take away that storytelling, then the art world collapses. Mm -hmm. The storytelling is essential for the art world to function. It creates a space in which rich and poor can speak with each other. But of course, there's an elephant in the room and you point at it. The elephant in the room is that they both know there is no equality and they are not going to participate in each other's lives. But art, the art world, the white cube as a model, creates this safe space, ultimately a safe space for capital to go unchecked. So truth-telling would be that it's a very perverse space Yeah, that is full of lies on either sides, a perversion that everybody would privately emit, yet it fuels the entire game, because if we would behave otherwise... I mean, the whole thing would just... And there would be class war. Yeah. It's a way to avoid class war. Yes. I had it on my tongue. I was too shy to use the word. It's a safe space for capital to avoid <laughs> class war. But I don't want class war myself. I want to make art. Ha! But here you are with a problem. Yeah. So what you ultimately want is you want to make art. Yeah. At best, you don't want to be disturbed or hindered. You also want resources, 
resources are connected to money, money mm. that comes from plantations, for example. So here you collide with your own desire as an artist, meeting the implications of the resources you desire. Yeah, the only thing I can do, and that's what I do now, is try and create level playing fields for people who can't even pay the rent of the apartment, but who will never be able to travel to a region where there are apartments or plumbing or healthcare or... But yeah, it's a harsh, uh, it's a harsh conclusion you draw, um, that, that I'm, yeah. What happens equality. in this conversation at the dinner with this wealthy lady that you just invented? Mm -hmm. And you, when you explain her how you try to inverse the conditions between her world and the plantation world? Since she has money and I have zero money, I can only hope for her sympathy and support. Which is perverse. I can only hope that she says, that's a great project. What do you need? Maybe there is a critical point that is reached if it becomes clear for everybody to see that people who work and live on plantations are as intelligent, as capable, have mm -hmm. probably deeper artistic intuitions and that the inequalities are completely artificial. So when CATPC, the Cercle d'Art et Travail de Plantation Congolaise, so the cooperative of this group of people in Lusanga who makes art, when they made a show in New York and the New York Times said it was one of the best exhibitions of the year, I would hope that this breaks the spell and that it makes no sense morally or economically to keep up these distinctions. Um, unfortunately, even that article didn't lead to enormous amounts of sales, which is strange. One of the best exhibitions of the year, said the New York Times, and not just some, I don't know, society writer, but some of the key art critics of the New York Times said it. And yet it has led to very little sales, or much smaller than I would hope. You know, I would think, okay, now we can sell for a million dollars. But that didn't happen. Maybe that's because I'm naive and the art world is operating differently than I think. Uh, that critical acclaim will lead to sales. Maybe that's not the way it works, but I hoped it would. Apparently it doesn't. No, there, there must be other systems that I don't understand well enough. Or I'm not guided well enough. Are the rules of the game so determined and so strict that if you're not the artist persona that's part of the events, the parties, the social environments in New York, etc., um, your work is nice, but you know, I don't know you, I've never met you. You're not a plantation worker from the Congo. You're not part of the same class. You're not part of the same class. Yeah, well, I, I, we try to tackle that, obviously, because... One member of that cooperative was in New York. And after that, in new iterations, many lectures were held at elite institutions in the United States and in Europe. And by Art Basel conversations, yeah. Exactly, Art Basel conversations by members of this community and spoke eloquently and convincingly. Is what I think and what other people also thought. And that's why, you know, again, there is critical acclaim, but it doesn't translate into sales. Or not as much as I would hope. 
One thing that really struck me is that one of the critiques to that very show that was 2017 in Sculpture Center in New York City was that these people couldn't possibly be real artists because they were poor plantation workers. And so by default, the whole project by was, default, yes. by default, the whole project was a failed Oxfam, Novi, Oxfam NGO project. And this could not be considered art, but craft, something done by poor people. Funnily enough, one of the main voices of this type of critique is a very eminent black African scholar at a prestigious US institution. So the class system is very, very persuasive. Mm -hmm. Even if people from a plantation make the best show of the year, there will be voices who will say, by default, this cannot be art. And by default, these people cannot be taken seriously as artists who have an authorship. And the way out was to say for them, there's a white guy involved. Me, Renzo. That was like a trigger used as a trigger to discredit the sculptures made by people in Lusanga that I have no part in. I never made those sculptures. But the fact that I was involved in building the infrastructure and creating a few ties so that this work could be exhibited in Sculpture Center was enough to discredit the authorship mm -hmm. and the generosity even of people on the plantation. Mm -hmm. So this brings us to the idea, the very sad uh, uh, idea, that the cultural sphere is extremely well policed, whereas the economic sphere is completely unpoliced. I am a white man. I am involved in creating a few ties between a plantation in Lusanga and an art center in New York. That is true. The big forces, tremendously bigger, who are typically the moderators between people on plantations in Congo and art markets or art institutions in New York, are companies such as Unilever, mm -hmm. where people make tens of millions per year simply by owning shares into that company. Mm -hmm. They are the organizers of the big streams of resources and capital and products. And are the trustees of museums. And are often trustees of museums with which then exhibitions are being funded, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. So in the cultural sphere, and I'm not saying it's wrong per se, but it's remarkable that in the cultural sphere, this is heavily policed and people on plantations who make art are discredited because they create an alliance, whereas the alliance created between consumers and producers of chocolate, for example, goes unchecked mm -hmm. and uncritiqued in the art world. And that's a far bigger industry. Unilever, 60 billion per year is the turnover and 10% is profit. And the profit goes into the hands of all kinds of people. And some of them fund these museums. So funnily enough, the policing of agency within the art world, and I'm not saying it's bad, maybe it should be policed. Nevertheless, one of its effects is that the big capital streams go unpoliced and the authorship of people on plantations is discredited. And another effect is that if you are truth-telling in the art world about this, people say you're peeing on us. Well, they don't say that. They just say it's bad art and you shouldn't buy it. Which is one way to say the same thing. 
Yeah, I, I'm sure there is a direct connection between a professor writing a piece in art forum saying this cannot be considered real art and the, the lack of sales. I guess I understood what you're doing when I heard you talking at a panel discussion one day and you said these words, I don't want to talk about the problem, I want to have the problem. Yeah, that's that's really true. I want to have the problem and I also want all of us to have that problem. So my attempt in earlier films was to make anybody who watches the film complicit in the problem, that there would be no way out, that the freedom of choice, that you can look at impoverished people at the other end of the globe and think that you are not a producing factor of that, an art lover who can walk out of the room and not be complicit in that suffering. I wanted to take away that liberty. I want to make everybody complicit. The global apartheid, in which some people can do critique, cherish critique, and other people elsewhere on the planet who fund you do not have the liberty, the agency, the money, the freedom to critique, that apartheid should be abolished. But you know what? Mm. We could say the idealistic slash naive point is that we don't want the change you're talking about. I mean, we as people from the wealthy West, what you are suggesting is something that would require so much as a change for our part of the world that whenever you address the topic, people, when they think about it and understand it, would run away screaming. Yeah, I think there's a real desire for change. I think many Western institutions, and not only Western, also in the Global South, elite institutions in the Global South, are singing the tune of decolonization, of equality, and of care. So I want to take that seriously, but not just in Cape Town or Berlin or Dubai or even Lubumbashi or Kinshasa. I think we have delivered together, and many other people have, delivered a proof of concept that these distinctions are arbitrary and they're counterproductive to what art can be. The art world will gain so much insight, knowledge, depth of thinking if people who live and work on plantations are part of the conversations, mm. are part of the production system. Mm. Museums that have been funded historically and keep on being funded by money extracted from plantations will learn so much more about themselves will produce ultimately better discourse, better art, if people on plantations and in mines and in slums are part of the conversation. Mm. It will benefit the art world. So the policing through various mechanisms, economic but also intellectual, poor people can't make good art, it undermines the quality of art. It's not good enough to simply or only decolonize within a small perimeter around a museum, some institution in Berlin or in Cape Town or in Lubumbashi or where have you, the museum will not be decolonized and real good great art will not be made until the plantations are also able to decolonize themselves.